Okay, uh, today is June the 21st, 2012. And remember, the 26th of next month, Moses Amabiko is going to be here. And we're looking forward to that. He's an internationally known speaker, and I've known him personally. I've known him since, I don't know, I think it's 1995. I think that's when he was ordained. Anyway, we want to uh, keep that in mind. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual manner, that being having a few minutes of uh, silent prayer and the option of uh, rebound if necessary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you are. We thank you for all the many great things you have done for us. We pray that you will help us to slow down and meditate upon your greatness. To think about the wonderful things that you have done for us. The marvelous promises that you've made for us in the future. And the sustaining protection and provision that you provide for us every single day. So easy for us to get in the rat race, forget what's really important. So we pray that you will help us to just set everything aside in our soul this evening, in our mind, so that we can concentrate on who and what you are, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are on Lesson 69. And we went over a few points of this last time. Uh, and it's the, this area of getting the gospel right is what God did in order to save mankind. And this is in chronological order of some of the things. Now, I may have left something out. And I, if I do, I'll probably notice it after I'm past this, and I'll think, oh, yeah, I could have put that in there. But that's okay, because if that happens, I'll just come back and put it in there. That's one nice thing about the computers we have. You can just take text and move it around and put it wherever you want. So I'm just, we're just going to delve right into that this evening. Here is the uh, notes that you can follow if you'd like. Most people rarely, if ever, think about the many things that God chose to do in order to provide eternal salvation for mankind. One of the key words in that verse is chose to do. He chose to do it. He didn't have to do it. God is sovereign. He can do anything that He wants to do. He decided to create the angels. He decided to create the universe. He decided to create mankind. And at all the time that this went in, and we're using this word time, it's so hard to deal with. It's a relative term. But when he did all this, he knew the end from the beginning. He knew all of the calamity that would come about by giving man free will. And yet, hardly anything would even make sense had he not given man free will. He could have created robots. He could have pre-programmed us to accept his grace, accept the gospel, and to love him in return. He, he's sovereign. He could very well have done that. 
But it's hard, at least from our limited perspective, to see how that would bring him glory. How much glory would someone really receive if they made a creature programmed to glorify him? So when he decided to give us free will, it was like (laughs) opening Pandora's box. I mean, uh, the sky's the limit on what could happen as far as ill and as far as the good things. So it demonstrates his great control and confidence, his omniscience. He knew everything. I keep going back to his omniscience. And as we go through these things that he chose to do, he chose to create us, which he didn't have to do. He didn't even have to create the universe. Some people say, well, he had to create mankind so he wouldn't get lonesome. Well, this is a trinity. It's the triune God. He wouldn't get lonesome. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He did it because he chose to. And here's one other tidbit I want to throw in before we actually start getting into these points. And that is that God knowing what was going to take place, knowing all of the exigencies that could happen, and yet still created us with free will, with the ability to sin. And of course, he knew that we were going to sin. And listen to this. He also knew what it would take to save us before he even created us. So whenever he, whenever he imputes soul life to us, whenever he created Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, he knew full well that they were going to fall and all the things that were going to take place, and he still went ahead anyway, which speaks of great confidence in himself, of being able to control and still have glory given to him. And it also shows an astounding love for creatures such as, such as us. The first thing that comes to mind when one starts to meditate on all that he did in order to save us is the astounding love that he has for us. When I was going through this, and by the way, um, I don't know how, how other pastors study. It's never the same. Sometimes you'll be in a Bible verse or sometimes you'll be dealing in a principle and you have to just grind. You have to just, it's just so hard to get through it because we always are striving for accuracy. We have to bounce it off of all the other doctrines to make sure that it's theologically sound and it doesn't conflict with anything else. And sometimes it's in the language. Sometimes it's in the syntax. I mean, there's always there's different ways that things come out. This, though, came out, it just flowed, if you, if you can understand what I'm saying. I was wondering, we're getting close to the end of this study, of the gospel study. And I was, I was praying to the Lord. I said, okay, Lord, uh, I want to make sure that I don't want to miss anything, leave anything out that would be beneficial and edificacious to, uh, to your children. So if you've got anything, this would be a good time to let me know. <laughs> Anyway, it was long about in that mode that I thought about, okay, 
what all did it take for God to save mankind? And then it just started flowing. It just I couldn't get down the computer fast enough, and it just... I didn't have to think. I just couldn't hardly get it out fast enough. And that's the way it is sometimes. Sometimes it's not. But anyway, what I did have from the very get-go, and by the time I got to point 13, I, had, I was just thinking, wow, what a God. What a tremendous, astounding love that He has that He brought us into being, knowing what all He would have to do to save us. So, point number one. God is perfect in every way, and it is impossible for Him to compromise His perfect essence. There are things that God cannot do. There are things that are impossible for God to do because of His perfect essence. He can't lie. He can't be wrong. He can't be afraid. There's a lot of things that His essence prevents. And one thing overall that He cannot do is compromise his perfect essence in order to accommodate anyone's sin, whether it's angelic or whether it's human. So this means that he cannot overlook sin. He must judge it. If God didn't act, Adam, Eve, and all of their descendants would die and spend eternity in the lake of fire. You see, once this thing started in motion, once God created Adam and Eve and Eve, and he breathed into them that shema, that spark of life. All bets were off. It was going to run its course. So I don't know how long, but God does not reveal to us how long it was before they sinned. And there's all kind of speculation. I heard somebody say, well, a week, you know, could have been a month, could have been a year, could have been 10,000 years. We have no way of knowing. But we do know that they failed and God knew that they were going to fall. But once it's set into motion, of course, God told them ahead of time, if you eat of the forbidden fruit, you're going to die. And, of course, they didn't die physically when they ate of the fruit. They died spiritually. And he allowed them to live. Adam was over 900 years. So what that means is they're producing children all this time. And their children are going to produce children. And on and on and on. So what you're looking at is millions, billions of descendants that are going to need to be saved. And so it's not just about Adam and Eve. It's about all their descendants. And this is where it really hits home, where we really see the importance of it, because it, we are Adam and Eve's descendants as well. It affects us and every other person. Point two. The only way they could be saved was for someone perfect to take their punishment. Someone had to die spiritually in their place. Had to be perfect. And that means that just any Johnny-come-lately couldn't feel the bill. This substitute had to be perfect because if he was guilty of any sin, even one sin, he would be disqualified to die in place of others because his death would be a just penalty for his own sins. That's why it was absolutely imperative that Jesus Christ be perfect, sinless. Because if he... Just think of this. Even one middle attitude sin from Christ would have disqualified him, disqualified him to be our substitute. It was all resting on him. There is no other. So, we, we, we see that 
The problem was God isn't going to compromise His, His perfect essence. He's going to judge sin. And someone who was not sinful had to be the substitute. Point three. No, no human being could be the substitute could could be substituted for the fallen mankind because all mankind is com- condemned by Adam's original sin when they're born. Plus, they have an old sin nature and is guilty of personal sins. In other words, three strikes and you're out. And they have all. Every one of us have had all three strikes. So, furthermore, God could not be the substitute to die in man's place because deity cannot die. And see, Satan is just having a field day over there. When Adam ate of that fruit, he thought, I got him now. The angelic conflict is good as one. I'm going to replace God. It seems like an inscrutable problem. Point four. It would seem that it was impossible to save mankind. No human would ever be qualified to be the substitute because of sin, and God was unable to be the substitute because He cannot die. And dying was the penalty. Point five. God's solution was one that no one expected, not Adam or Eve, no elect or fallen angel, not even Satan suspected what God would do. Jesus Christ would become the God-man. Jesus Christ is the unique one of the universe. Point six. A God-man could do what man couldn't do, and that is be sinless, and what God couldn't do, which is die. Now, the deity didn't die, but the humanity of Christ died. The theological term for God-man is the hypostatic union. And that's foreign to most people. But God knew in eternity past this had to take place. So let's look at this uh, this, uh, hypostatic union for just a minute. Let's get a definition. Definition of a hypostatic union is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. That's the, that's the shortest definition. Undiminished deity, I mean, when Jesus Christ became the God-man, His deity was not diminished in any way. Indeed, deity cannot be diminished in any way, or else it wouldn't be deity. In the person of the incarnate Christ are two natures, divine and human inseparably united without mixture or loss of separate identity. Jesus Christ was so unique. The other two members of the Godhead are not like Jesus Christ because they don't have humanity. And there's no humanity like Jesus Christ because no humanity has deity. And He had both. Inseparable. But yet there was no bleed through, no mixture either one. That's why He was true humanity, true deity, United in one person. There was no loss or transfer of properties or attributes from one to the other, the union being personal and eternal. 
You know what that means, being eternal? There was a time when Jesus Christ had no human form. And we see Him manifested in theophanies in the Old Testament. Well, remember when we were looking, when we were um, studying Joshua, Joshua? And He appeared to Joshua as the, uh, the Lord of the armies? Well, He took on a form, but He had not been incarnate yet. In other words, he had not taken on human form. He wasn't born a human yet. So it wasn't until Jesus Christ came to earth, was born of a virgin, that he became the God-man. Prior to that, he was God. And he could manifest himself in different ways, but he wasn't a man. Eternal here means... That from now on, you see, when Jesus Christ took on the form of a man, when he became human, it was permanent. I mean, Jesus Christ didn't take on a human form on planet earth while he was ministering, going to the cross, doing what was necessary. And then when he went back to heaven, he would shed that humanity and be eternal God again as the others. No, this, he is eternally the God-man. Prior to this, he was God. Now he's a God-man. That's why there will be a day when we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ and we will see him in his human, humanity. He's still deity, but we can see his humanity. Okay, a few more points. Uh, these are sub-points. This is sub-point A. Beginning with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the human nature was inseparably united forever with the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Inseparably united. B, the two natures of Christ in hypostatic union remain distinct, whole and unchanged without mixture or confusion, so that one unique person, our Lord Jesus Christ, remains forever truly God and truly man. Do you understand that? That's the important point. Now, we have the luxury of looking back on this and saying, Oh, okay, yeah, I understand. This is hypostatic union. This is the God-man. We have a vocabulary to, to uh, describe this. You know, it was nearly 500 years that they struggled with this issue before they ever had, came to a conclusion that this is what the Bible is saying? Point C. The Lord Jesus Christ is unique in the universe. He is God with all the attributes of God. All the attributes of deity adhere to his deity and never cross over and become humanity. All the attributes of humanity adhere to the humanity of Christ and never become deity. When Je Jesus Christ was a carpenter, and I don't think there was ever a carpenter that at one point didn't hit the wrong nail. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm sure that when he did it, he didn't say what I, he didn't say what I say. Even if he hit his hand, he loses a nail. He hit it so hard, he's not going to uh, do anything that would be sinful. While he was hurting when he hit his, na his, his nail, his thumb, he was still holding the whole universe together with his deity. So he was experiencing humanity. Everything that we experience, he experienced except not sin. Well, he didn't experience marriage and some of these things, but he was, he was uh, going through the human experience at the same time he was holding the universe together.
Point D, this is the last sub-point. The doctrine of the hydrostatic union was confirmed by the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. So there was about, what, 400 years or so that from, from the time that the, the canon of Scripture was completed circa 96 A.D., close to 100, and you got 451, I don't know what, 350 years, something like that, I guess that they had to wrestle with this, and they finally, there were so many ideas, and there's uh, a lot of things that happened, but this is one thing we should be thankful for. This is a settled deal. We don't have to go back and make that argument anymore. It was already settled at the uh, Council of Canceled, uh, uh, Chalcedon. Okay, here's some verses that have to do with the uh, hypostatic union of Christ. If you're going to make some notes, this would be a good time to do it. Because it's one thing to say that Jesus Christ is the God-man in hypostatic union, but we have to always verify it by Scripture. So we start with John 1.14. And the Word, the Word being Jesus Christ. Where do we get this? We know that from John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, not a God. God. So the Word and the Word became flesh. There's your incarnation and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we have the Word, Jesus Christ, deity becoming flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. You see, this is describing the hypostatic union. It is describing the God-man. And, and in it, you'll see in verse 7 where it says here, he emptied himself. The word emptied here is kenoo, K-E-N-O-O in the Greek. And this is where we get the doctrine of kenosis and we should be like here you have jesus christ he volunteered to become a man lower than the angels and even to go to the ghastly horrors of the cross he volunteered to do that and it shows his great humility that's why this verse says have this attitude in yourselves which was also in jesus christ he is the king of the universe. He is the, the God. He is a member of the Godhead. He created it all. In Colossians it says, all things were made by Him and for Him. And yet, think of the humility it took for Him to agree, volunteer, to come, become a creature lesser than the angels and go to the cross for us. The doctrine of kenosis. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Now in those verses we see, again, the doctrine of the hypostatic union, the twofold nature of Jesus Christ. Now Hebrews 1.3 is probably the most definitive verse with regards to the God-man and the hypostatic union. Hebrews 1.3 says, And he, referring to Jesus Christ, is the radiance of his glory. His, 
there is God the Father. So he, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of his, God the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. You know what the word for nature is here in the Greek? Hypostasis. That's where we get the hypostatic. comes from that word there in the Greek. Hypostasis, which means it's the doctrine of the hypostatic union. It, it, in some translations, the exact representation of His essence. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son have the exact same nature. It's the deity. And so it says, He is the exact representation of His, the God the Father's, essence or nature, and oppose all things by the word of His power. And then we have one more, let's see, yeah, one more, this, these are verses talking about the God-man. Jesus Christ had, see, there would be no salvation if it wasn't for the doctrine of the hypostatic union because it took someone who had to be God that could be sinless and someone who is man that could die. Short of that, there would be no salvation, period. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. What does that mean? He partook of flesh and blood. He became the incarnate one. He became man. That through death he might render powerless him who has power over death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. All this, all these are scriptures describing what was absolutely imperative. There had to be some substitute that had to be God and man. Point seven. But how could God become man? The only way was for Jesus Christ to be miraculously born of a virgin. This would take care of the old sin nature problem that is passed down by the Father. He would have no biological father, no old sin nature, which meant he would have no condemnation and the ability not to sin. You got that? These are other problems that had to be... Once, once it was decided that there had been man, how is that going to come about? Well, he had to be born of a virgin because we know that if he was born of a physical father... He passes down the old sin nature and that would disqualify him of being the substitute. He had to be perfect. And if with no old sin nature, it would give the substitute the ability not to sin, which Christ had that ability not to sin. And there's a great big debate. Some people say, well, Christ was never tempted because it was impossible for him to sin. I don't think so. I think it was possible for him not to sin, but he still had he still had volition. Point eight. Our substitute Jesus Christ would have to stay alive and remain perfectly sinless until he would be sacrificed on the cross. But God could not ignore the sins of all those who came before the cross and the penalty of sin. I've got two things there. First of all. There was a problem of, okay, you've got the incarnate Christ, the God-man is born. Now we've got a problem because he has to get to the cross. And what is Satan going to do with all his power to keep that from happening, right? How many times do you read in the, in the Scriptures that 
he would say, Christ would say something, the Pharisees would be irate at him and it, they wanted to kill him and yet he would slip through the crowd and get away. How many times do you see that? You see it over and over again. He was always, his life was in peril. His physical life, of course, deity can't die. So that was one issue that had to, had to be uh, broached. And, of course, uh, God would uh, be able to protect him with regards to that. But there's another problem. What about all the people that were born and sinned before the cross? That's an issue that has to be taken care of. You can't just say, okay, all those sins just don't count. We'll pretend that they don't sin until Christ goes to the cross, and then we'll bring it up and it'll be just fine. That had to be broached as well. That was a problem. So, point nine. God instituted a system of animal sacrifice to cover pre-Calvary sins. The innocent animals pointed to Jesus Christ, who was the innocent, who was innocent of any sin. So when they, why is it in, in uh, Exodus chapter twelve? It goes on and on and on, telling them how it's got to be a certain kind of animal. It has to be perfect. It can't have any illness. It can't have any uh, any uh, crookedness in their limbs couldn't be crippled or anything it had to be perfect why because it was a preview of Jesus Christ they were a temporary fix for sin until they would be dealt with once and for all on the cross Jesus was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world so you have the problem okay you've got the you've got a Savior that's going to come he's going to go to the cross he's got to make it to the cross but what about these billions of sins by millions of people before then? How are you going to handle that? Well, God just... What was the penalty? Let me ask you something. What is the penalty for sin? Death. And so the perfect solution was you have these animals who are innocent. Uh, some guy goes out and fornicates, and he's going to have to kill a bull over this deal. The bull is completely innocent, and yet some, something's got to die. And so it's a perfect representation of what Christ was going to do. And indeed, something does die. But it, didn't, it did not cure the sin problem. It just temporarily put a lid on it until Christ was going to come. And all this had to be handled. It was part of the thing that God had to deal with in order to save us and still be perfect in His essence. Point 10. After Jesus died on the cross, there still was a problem. He would have to rise from the grave and ascend to heaven. After all, how could we expect to have eternal life and go to heaven if Jesus Christ remained dead in the tomb? We could not expect to be resurrected if Christ was not resurrected. So we have another problem. Here you have this perfect God-man that makes it to the cross. All the pre-Calvary sins were taken care of with animals. And so he goes to the Christ... He dies for us, but wait, is that all that needs to happen? No. Now he's got to rise from the dead because if he doesn't rise from the dead, we have no salvation. I mean, if he died and never rose from the grave, we would never rise from the grave. This imperative that he, that he rise and be resurrected or, or else we wouldn't. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? That whole area from verse 1 all the way down to, I don't know, about verse 50, somewhere in there. He's talking about if, if we don't have, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, then he is not the God-man. He is not the substitute. He is a phony. We believe the lie, and we, above all men, are to be most pitied. 
because he isn't who he said he was. He had to rise from the grave. So this is another thing that had to be accomplished. Now, let me say at this point, we don't know how Jesus rose from the grave. I mean, we don't, we can't, God can't explain to our feeble minds, okay, now let me give you the, the physics and the... Uh, uh, let me diagram all that went on for, for Christ to be able to rise from the grave. We don't know that. That's where the faith comes in. We know that we have a, an abundant amount of evidence and anyone with reasonable uh, attitude would, would be convinced, okay, this had to happen. We don't know any more exactly how to explain how God accomplished the resurrection than we do about His birth. How could a woman, a virgin... Have a child. Well, these are miraculous things, and it's not important. The main thing is, what I'm pointing out, is that God knew these are things that had to be covered, had to be taken care of, in order for us to have eternal salvation. Verse, I mean, excuse me, I'm so used to saying verse all the time. Point number 11. The gospel had to be spread throughout the world. How would this be accomplished? I mean, now that this took place, you've got a problem. Because people need to know this to believe in Christ, that He's the substitute, He's the Messiah, He paid the price, so the Word has to get out. So now we have a problem. Who would do it? You see what I had the next word? Us with an exclamation point. Believers in Jesus Christ. We are commanded to give the gospel to unbelievers. Do you remember one of our memory verses? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse nineteen. Y'all don't look too happy. <laughs> For God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to Himself, not what? Not counting their sins against them. And He's given to us what? The, the ministry of reconciliation. And what is the ministry of reconciliation? It's the gospel. God is imploring us to do our job, to be good servants, to reach the masses with the gospel because we're the only one that can do it. And that's why this is important. What good would it do for Christ to go to the cross and those few people in that generation that saw it were witness to it and all, and that's the only ones that knew it. The Word has to get out. There was a problem, so He enables us to do it. Not only does He enable us, he commands us to do it. Point 12. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I've got some verses to substantiate this. Now, this is very important. Here's some commands for us with regards to the gospel. Mark 16:15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now, I know that that was Christ talking to the disciples, but that same principle applies to us as well. Only thing, we don't have to go all over the world, do we? All we have to do is go out our front door and look to our neighbor to the left, look to our neighbor to the right, go to the grocery store. The field is white with harvest. Or the harvest is white. The field is white with harvest. I don't know. Anyway, there's a lot of people out there that need the gospel. Let's put it this way. We are the one that God has commissioned to reach them. Luke 24:47. Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Everything started. The church age began in Acts chapter 
1, verse uh, 8, Christ is ascended. The next thing you have in verse uh, chapter 2 is, the, is Pentecost. The church age begins. And everything started flowing from that place. When I was in First Peter, I was teaching about there was actually three Pentecosts, if you want to term, uh, give them that term. The first one was in Jerusalem that had to do with the Jews. The second one was at Cornelius' house, a Gentile. And then you had the Samaritans, which were half Jew and half Gentile. And Peter was out at all three of these and that kicked off the church age. And each one of them had their own uh, distinctions, little differences. After that, Everything is done the same in the church age. So it started in Jerusalem as we see here. Then we have 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, which puts it in even better context than just quoting verse 19. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ. What is that describing when it says God was in Christ? Isn't that describing the hypostatic union? Isn't that describing the God-man? So God was in Christ uh, reconciling what? The world. Not just the elect, the world. Reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Appealing to who? Appealing to unbelievers. He's appealing to unbelievers through us. And then he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to Christ. And there is only one way to be reconciled to Christ, and that is to believe that He is the Son of God. That He went to the cross, He died, He was resurrected, and now offers eternal life to us. That's the message we need to be getting out. Let me take a breath here. Drink of water. We might get through this. We've got two more points. Then there's a problem of spiritually dead mankind being able to understand the gospel, which is spiritually discerned. The problem is taken care of by common grace. In other words, okay, we're commissioned. We are to take the gospel to all mankind these unbelievers who are all spiritually dead in the gospel is what? Spiritual phenomenon. How are they going to understand it? Well, God takes care of that as well. Another problem, another problem solved. Look at this. Now, these three verses you need to write down in your Bible. You need to go to them because there's a lot of confusion. If you get in Reformed theology, they don't understand this. They say that God has to give you the faith to believe. You can't come up with it yourself. You have to Receive that faith from God, and then you can believe, and then you can be reconciled, and that's a bunch of garbage, because that's not what it's about. They don't understand this. There is something that's supernatural that happens every time you give the gospel to an unbeliever, because what happens is the Holy Spirit makes that gospel message clear to a spiritually dead unbeliever. Here's where we substantiate it with these verses. First of all, John 16, 8. This is, we went over this recently, just a little bit up. I could go in my notes a little higher. Remember when we were going over uh, John 16? Starts out, and He, when He comes, this is the Holy Spirit. Because just, just before this, I guess I should have included this verse as well. Uh, Christ said, it is imperative, it's necessary for me to go away. Because if I don't go away, 
then the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit won't come. It's imperative for him to come. And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Y'all remember going over that not long ago? Okay. It's that convicting the whole world. Anytime the gospel is giving, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts, some, some translation says convinces the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I don't have to go over that again because I just did it recently. Remember? Okay. Then we go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 and 17. This is Christ talking to Simon Peter. And then Simon Peter answered, uh, let me give you a little background. Christ asked, well, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say that you're a, a teacher and some think that you are John the Baptist. You know, they, different ideas. And, he's, and he, so he tells Peter, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It wasn't somebody just telling you this. It wasn't just the words, but my Father who is in heaven. At that point, this was pre-Pentecost, and it was God the Father that revealed to Peter who Christ was. In other words, this is, this is spiritual evidence Peter was spiritually dead, and there was a point in time that Peter understood, ah, this is the Son of the living God. And so here we have the Father making it clear, which was the gospel. Then we have the most conclusive in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, this is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Who's involved in this? The Holy Spirit. We call this common grace. It's common because it happens every time, everywhere, every time someone gives the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts that person. That's the guilt, knowing that you are sinful and there is an Almighty God that they're going to answer to. By God, here's verse 13. I mean, excuse me, point 13. Now, people who have believed the gospel still continue to sin. Uh-oh, another problem. Ah, just one after. You ever have a day like that? I mean, every time you fix something, something else pops up, and then some over here goes wrong. Well, of course, this was uh, a little bit more important than our problems. But people who believe the gospel still continue to sin. This issue had to be dealt with since man is unable to maintain his salvation. So if all this happened... And when a person believes in Jesus Christ, they don't lose their old sin nature. The power of the old sin nature is broken. But they're still going to sin. What's going to, how are we going to deal with that? And they can't maintain it. How is God going to solve this problem? Well, here's a couple of my favorite verses here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's living hope because our Lord lives. He rose from the grave. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Does that perk your ears a bit? That there is this inheritance and it's not going to rust, it's not going to be stolen, it's not going to be lost, 
It's there in heaven. won't fade away. For you who are, look at this, and this is, this, if you don't go there, at least underline it in your notes. It doesn't say what is kept by the power of God. It's not talking about this imperishable rewards that, are, that uh, is kept by the power of God. It's who are kept by the power of God. Who are kept by the power of God? Who is that? Us as believers. We are kept from the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Operative phrase there, we are kept by the power of God. We know that we have eternal life. We know that we're going to heaven. We know we can't lose it. We don't have to maintain it because we're kept by God's power, not ours. And His power is in His Word and His promises which are impossible to break. Here's another one. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God that would include eternal life and God's own righteousness, which are gifts to us, are irrevocable. He can't take them back. Even if he wanted to, which he doesn't. But even if he wanted to, he cannot take back eternal life and his own righteousness. They're imputed at the moment of salvation. So I don't know who the worst believer ever was. Well, Paul says he was the worst believer, but there's been a lot since Paul. I don't know who the worst believer is, but he'd have to be a real stinker. It doesn't matter who he is. Once you're born again, you're a child of God, and you can no longer be no longer a child of your heavenly Father than you can from your physical Father, your biological Father. No matter how ugly you may become, no matter what you do, you are always going to be the child or, uh, of your biological father. Nothing can change that. Nothing can change when you're born again that you are a child of the Most High. And then there's one more. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So this post-salvation problem isn't, isn't so much of a problem. God solved this. And then we have 1 John 1, 9. Now, this has to do with the post-salvation sinning problem. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All we have to do is acknowledge that sin to God. And 1 John 1, 9, excuse me, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins. He forgives us. Why is He just to forgive us? Just because we acknowledge our sins. The sin is already paid for. All He wants from us is humility to acknowledge it and seek forgiveness. Okay. Um, that's, that's, that's number 13. Wasn't that number 13? Okay. So there you have it. Now, I went through those pretty fast. When you go back through these and you start thinking about them, you just start meditating about them. And it wasn't that... Don't have the mindset that, okay, God had to... Um, he started out deciding He was going to create man 
And then when he knew that man was going to fall, he had to really hustle and come up with a solution to that one. And then something else would happen. He had to come up with another solution. That's not God knows everything to begin with. He knew all of this. Now, let's be honest. If you were God, after knowing all of that, that you would have to, all the problems, all the things that you would have to do, your own son would have to go and be a creature and become, go to the cross. Wouldn't you think that you might just say, uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's worth it. I, I think I'll come up with a different plan. It's much easier just to pre-program them to love me and Christ wouldn't have to go to the cross. And I can even program them not to sin. But here's the thing. God is eternally perfect. And when he chose a plan in eternity past, he's sovereign, he's omnipotent, he could do anything. But whatever plan he chose had to be absolutely perfect and the best plan. It had to be or else he's not God because he's perfect. He had to have the perfect plan. And so knowing all this that he was going to have to do way back then, God is shouting to us through these scriptures and through when we're meditating on what He chose to do in order to save us, shows us His abundant, magnificent love and capacity to take care of such sinful blobs as us. Now, do you have a little bit more of an appreciation for God and His love and His character and what He can do and what He's done? So whenever we get down, we get discouraged because we have problems and we want to throw a pity party and all this. God just doesn't love me anymore. He just didn't even think about me anymore. Just start thinking about what He chose to do in eternity past to meet all these problems so that we wouldn't have our just punishment, which is eternity in the lake of fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of You. We're in awe of our Lord Jesus Christ to step out of the glory of heaven to become a, a meager man and have to go to the indignity and shame and torture of the cross. We're in awe of the Holy Spirit of what He is able to do for us and through us these are the things that we need to concentrate on and meditate on and get our mind off of the details of this life. We have such a wonderful, magnificent, and great God. We need to be so full of You that we cannot contain it and we have to tell others about what You have done to save us. We pray that You will give us opportunity and that you'll give us the wisdom and the words so that they will too be able to see also what a magnificent God we have. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.